Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential television. I watch you on YouTube. <laughs> oh, great. I really love watching people's expressions, what they don't say. And that fascinates me. I didn't like misery. It scared the out of me. When I was married, my ex-husband said after he saw misery that he didn't see anything unusual up there. On yeah, yeah. Now I'm working on American Horror Story and... I never dreamt uh, that I would have the opportunity at this age to play roles of that magnitude and depth. And Ryan Murphy brought me back to life. Well, if you can't tell from listening, that was Kathy Bates. And I've got to tell you, I don't get starry-eyed very easy, but when I started to do this podcast, I was asked if you could talk to somebody in Hollywood, an actress that you just really, really admire, who would it be? It took me about a nanosecond to say Kathy Bates. I'll tell you why. I've never been able to catch her acting. You watch her and she just becomes the character. And this is a woman that I have admired for a long, long time. When I sat down with her, I found out she went to SMU. Now, you know, Southern boy, Southern girl, we just really kind of had a vibe. I found out that she really watches Dr. Phil. She studies some things on YouTube about her characters. I couldn't have been more flattered. But, you know, you always wonder when you meet somebody, are they going to let you down or are they going to be the real deal? Let me tell you, when I walked away from this, I admired her even more than the minute I met her. So let's stop talking about her and start talking to her. That's going to happen in less than one minute. In 10 days, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Ready PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knock. Hello. Well, hello. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to death to meet you. Same here. So how in the world are you? I'm really great. I can't tell you uh, how happy I am for you to be here. I guess they probably have already told you, you are my absolute number one actress in the entire world. No, they didn't tell me they didn't that. Tell you I that? hope you got that on film, No, because <laughs> I want to play that back. No, I'm serious. When I started to do this, they said, all right, and we're talking about actress, Hollywood, all of that. If you could talk to one, who would it be? I said, 
Kathy Bates. I have been your biggest fan forever. Well, same here. Thank you. About me say, oh, I'm your number one fan. But seriously, it is an honor to meet you. I just can't even believe I'm sitting here talking to you. Well, same here. I have, um, I watch you on YouTube a lot. (laughs) Well, great. (laughs) I'm not a subscriber yet, but I I watch because I I learned. We'll hook you up. Okay. I learn a lot, but also for character studies, I love to see real people. Oh, you yeah. know. Well, if you can't find it on my YouTube, it does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> I'll promise you. So, well, how are you? I'm really good. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky. I've been working a lot. I'm doing American Horror Story oh, or season eight. And then tell me. I'm also doing uh, Big Bang Theory. I'm right. playing Maya Bialik's uh, mom and Teller's playing um, my husband, her dad. And yeah. so I'm, you know, I'm finding that um, I'm working and working and working and, and I'm really grateful for every day that I get up. Does that surprise you that you're working so much? Does yeah. it really? Yeah. What do you say to yourself about that? Well, first of all, I feel real lucky to be alive after the last few years because I had breast cancer about six years ago, about this time. So every day I get up, I'm just grateful that I get to do everything that I love and I don't take anything for granted. And um, I just thank God, you know, for everything. Well, before we finish, I want to save time to talk about all of that. I want to talk about lymphedema. Thank you. I'm sorry that you've been through all of that. I have a sister that's been through that as well. And so I know that it's it's more than a bump in the road. Yeah. And, uh, she's doing okay? Yes. Good. But I want people to get to know you, okay. including that. You were born in Memphis, Tennessee? Me- Memphis, Tennessee. Is yeah. that the born accent in- or did well, it Well, I told them, you know, I was thinking about this. It used to be when I'd go home, if I hit baggage claim, my Southern accent would come out. Isn't that the truth? But I knew when I hit your driveway that Southern <laughs> accent is going to come out again. So. Do you hear my accent? Oh, yeah. But yours you is more Texas, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it is Texas, yeah. Yeah, I went to school uh, in Texas. Yeah, I, you so. went to SMU. Yeah. And you went there for one reason and then finished for another. Yeah, you right? know everything. I do. You, I'm you telling have your sources. You, well, not, no, I'm telling you, I'm a huge fan, so I've followed all of this. Yeah. But I've, you're an SMU girl. I am. I think it shocked my dad because he was in his late 60s, about my age, right. early 70s, and it was a, turned out to be a very expensive school, which we couldn't afford that. Well, it is expensive, yeah. Yeah, well, it was, it was expensive for him, and I am always a I appreciate so much what my parents did to get me there. I just guess growing up in the South, you know, growing up, especially with two sisters who were nine and 15 years older than I, I thought that you could only be a secretary or a teacher or something like that or a nurse, you know, and I loved doing plays in high school and I just had no idea that you could actually study that or do that for a living or much less getting a degree. And you graduated in 69 from mm-hmm. SMU, right? Mm-hmm. Did you have any idea you were going to do the kind of things that you're doing? Not to this extent. And I just, I knew that I felt at home when I was on a stage. And I just, when I went to SMU and I went through uh, orientation and the guy was I had gone to the School of the Humanities. I thought, well, I'll just go into English because I love reading. And he was such a great speaker. And he started saying, this is where you're going to do your life's work, the thing that means the most to you. So then I thought, okay, the playing field, it just shifted major, majorly. I kept raising my hand and saying, well, does this mean I can be in plays? Can I actually study actors and what's going on? And he was just so frustrated with me. He handed me my folder. He said, here's your folder. Go down the hall, last door on the left. That's the art school. That's where you belong. So I 
took my folder and I went down the hall and I opened the door and there were all these people with beards and, you know, <laughs> hippie outfits on. And I was with my little, you know, shirt waist dress. And I was like, oh, dear Lord, what have I gotten myself into? But then shortly after that, I saw uh, a play they did and it was so marvelous. The actors, you know how sometimes even sometimes you can just bring a good football team together. And yeah. that's even without recruiting. Yeah. yeah, the chemistry. And that was what it was. Yeah. Well, I don't want to embarrass you here because I know you are very humble about all of this. But the thing that gets me about you, and we were just talking about you in the kitchen, uh, is Allie in here? Which I was just talking to Allie. She's one of our rock star producers. But we were just talking about you. I've been talking about you for two weeks nonstop now since we said we were going to do this. I never catch you acting, ever. And I don't know if that means anything to anybody but me, but I never see you acting. How is that? Do you know what I mean by that? I've never seen you one time in anything where I was watching Kathy Bates. Wow. You always become the character. And sometimes it absolutely scares the living shit out of me. (laughs) The New Orleans in... Coven, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was... Yeah. That was bad. Yeah, I'm a big guy (laughs) scared the shit out of me. (laughs) What's the secret? How do you do that without anybody seeing you acting? Because clearly you take on the part, but how do you do it without anybody seeing you acting? Well, first of all, that's that's a very nice compliment because when I see things, sometimes I think, oh God. Mm-mm. Do you see yeah. yourself acting? Yeah, sometimes I do. And really? people are saying, oh, you're crazy. To me, acting is listening and responding. And it goes back to an old Stanislavski quote, which is the secret to an actor's creativity is the object of his concentration. And I bet you experience this when you do your show because you're a really good listener. Well, I can't watch myself. I don't watch myself on TV. If they if they say, you, you got to look at this to see if it's okay to put on and I'll watch it. But I don't watch myself. But once I start, when I'm on, the cameras go away. The mm-hmm. audience is gone. The cameras are gone. Mm-hmm. And the whole world is between the tip of my nose and the tip of the guest knows. And I've always said, if people are going to take the trouble to sit down and type a letter, and on average, they type 23 letters Mm -hmm. before they get on the show. Mm -hmm. And then they're willing to come there and put it out there in front of the world to see, then I feel like I need to do my homework and know. I read every word they, we do pre-interviews with them, of course. I read every word and I get a notebook. It's 250 pages thick for every show because we do a cross-sectional interview, a longitudinal interview, a medical interview. We interview collaterals. We talk to neighbors. We talk to everybody. And then whatever's going on, if it's OCD, anxiety, whatever, I interview the top experts in the world. And we have an advisory board made up of the top experts in psychiatry, sociology, psychology, medicine from Harvard, Yale, Stanford, everywhere. They're on my advisory board. I consult with them. I have this kind of, um, I don't know, country boy off the hip delivery style, but I've done a lot of homework before they get there. Mm -hmm. And then I just take it very seriously. I think if I get there, I need to take it seriously. Well, I feel the same way. I guess when I started out many years ago and, and you asked if I thought this would happen and I just wanted to be the best I could be given the talent that I, I had to work hard at it, though, I have to say. My mother said that, you know, they often asked her, well, you don't have any other kids that are in the theater? And she said no. And she said she thought that when I was born, the doctor smacked me on my behind, and I thought it was applause, and I've been looking for it ever since. <laughs> it started right there. <laughs> it started there. But, um, you know, and then later when I was maybe seven, and they were having a party, and I couldn't come downstairs, and I said, but what if they ask, where is that doll and child? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, so. But later when I got very serious about it, which was at SMU, um, right. I remember going on stage once and just feeling everything relax. And I thought, okay, now I'm home. And I just then developed this very almost religious approach to it where I felt that if I don't get this right, I'll be shot at dawn. I got to hold my cigarette right. I got to have the right, you know, accent. I got to have the right clothes. I have this. I have to do, you know. And so taking it back to this, your show, and it's no BS, I really love watching people's expressions, what they don't say. Yeah. You know, and that fascinates me. Yeah, it's so much of communication is nonverbal. And when you play a role, you define the role. So how can you do it wrong? I mean, it's you own the role. I love it when you tell people off. Uh, <laughs> well, um, you go into a foul mouth rant, I say. Yeah, I, 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 have a very, I have a very salty, <laughs> which, you know, nowadays when you have to start a series, you have to go to HR so you don't sexually harass anybody. Of so course. you can't use any of that language anymore. So I'm constantly, <laughs> you know, sitting on my hands and but just trying not script, to say you it. Can do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could you script my day for me? Because I want to choose some people's ass. I've got a movie coming out now on the basis of sex, which is a fantastic film about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Mm -hmm. And uh, Felicity Jones plays Ginsburg. And I got to play a woman who was one of the early, um, uh, she helped establish the ACLU. And so I was able to do a lot of research. And it's interesting, when I first started out in my career, I would just take copious notes and I would like color code everything and do all this stuff. And then slowly over the years, I, I kind of fell away from that. I don't know why, but now I... I can I can look on online and just go down a whole rabbit hole yeah. and say, well, what about this? And what when was that? And I don't understand that word. And I'll go here. And so now I've just started filling up my scripts again with all this stuff that's just so exciting to me, you know, to be able to get that kind of depth. You have 125 actress credits on IMDb. I cannot imagine doing so many roles across time. I mean, do you borrow from something you've done before for a current role? Or do you start from scratch every time? I start from scratch. When I did a film called Dolores Claiborne that I'm really proud of, I worked with a movement coach and he had a way of working where you actually work in a hood. You can still see through it. It's a black kind of stretchy thing. And his uh, way of working, which I thought was really interesting, is you just create, create a blank canvas out of your body and you get to what's called a neutral place that has no definition or it's hard for me to explain without doing it, but you get to literally a place that's neutral. Then you can start adding in the events and the emotions of the character and explore what that is in your physicality. And then you can begin to add things on top of that. I wanted to create a woman in her 40s and a woman in her 60s. And I worked with a wonderful director for that, Taylor Hackford, who's married to Helen Mirren, and he really knows how yeah. actors work. So that's what I like to do is build okay, from wait there. A you, put a, you put a hood on you. Like, for example, I put a hood on me and I'll walk across the room and I want to walk neutrally. So, so that my body has no character. You can see out of the hood, but, oh, you God, yeah. but you don't have any expression. No expression in the physicality, no expression in any of it. So that then I can say, well, what were these events that happened in her life? Like she got hit in the back with a block of wood by her husband. How does that change her, the way she walks, 
how did it affect her back? And she's lived hard life in her 60s. She's been cleaning tubs and toilets and folding and all that stuff. And how do, how do her hands change? And so you think about all of that and the kind of shorthand that an older person gets when they're cooking, uh-huh. stuff like that. We investigated all of that so that I had a very separate set of emotions and events for the young and something for the old. But you don't often have the opportunity to do that, yeah. you know? And it gives me such joy because look, when you, at the end of the day, it's dress up. Yeah. And you get to have the most wonderful people help you do it to the nth degree. Isn't that great? It's great. But you said Dolores Claiborne was a real sweet spot for you. Yeah. What about that was a sweet spot? Was it the character? It was the character. It was it was actually being able to create somebody at two different periods of her life. It was the makeup. That was the 40 and the 60. Mm-hmm. I, w- I had the best makeup and hair people from Italy, um, the Rocchetti family who mm-hmm. have made wigs since the 1700s. It was brilliant. And, and the makeup that they did and just to just to really embody another person is just the most fantastic experience. Like, I don't know if you know an actress named Holland Taylor, who's just absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. She just did a one woman show about Ann Richards the governor of Texas. I know Ann. I know the real. Uh, well, then you should see this. Yeah. And it she disappears into that character. Really? So that's your goal. Or if you see Meryl Streep uh, playing the prime minister of, of Britain, she just disappears. You can't yeah. see her anymore. And that's my goal. But yeah. you don't always have the opportunity in terms of the time or the, yeah. you know, the, it's, it's always boils down to time. Yeah. When you say disappear into a character, if you shoot a movie across six weeks, eight weeks, whatever, you shoot a movie six weeks, eight weeks, do you reset every day or do you keep that mindset during the night until you come back the next day? I feel like sometimes it's on the back burner. I know when we did Misery, um, I was taking it home with me and Rob Reiner, the director, said you need to leave this at home. I mean, you know, at work, yeah. go, go to home and then come back and start yeah. fresh. I didn't like Misery. No, I know. I loved you, but I did not like the storyline. scared the shit out of me. Well, I think that you would probably relate to him. Yeah. yeah I, I, <laughs> a, a, a crazed fan, you I'm know. I'm telling you, I was, I, I, I loved you and your portrayal. It was, it was phenomenal. Thank you. But. It was supposed to scare you, right? Yeah, it's supposed to scare you. But I want to go back to your earlier question, because that really interests me, is that, uh, for example, now I'm working on American Horror Story, and um, like I said, I'm notating my script. Um, And you've talked about this with your shows, with your guests sometimes, when you say go back and see the show again or another time, because things reveal themselves to you. When you read, when you look at something, you're a different person in that moment than you were in, you know, the present and so I like to read my scripts over and over and over again and say, oh, I didn't think about that time. And I write it down, which I'm doing really heavily now for American Horror Story, because for each episode, it's different. And I want to make sure I know where I am in the geography and the landscape. Yeah. What I think's fascinating about American Horror Story is you've got the same people, of course, the same ensemble. And then you become such different people from one series to the next. And that just seems to me 
like it would be such a hard sell to the viewer, but it's like 15 minutes in and it's like, I don't even think about the other. I think about this now. Yeah. And yeah. that's got to, you, you have to have a sense of power about that, that you can turn that much and become that person when they've known you for all these weeks as this other person. I never dreamt uh, that I would have the opportunity at this age to play roles of that magnitude and depth. And Ryan Murphy brought me back to life, literally, after I had been through breast cancer that summer and going to see him and suddenly being able to do this show uh, where, I mean, when I look back at 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 the characters that I've been able to play. And I mean, it was just, um, it was like having that Dolores experience again. Yeah. And uh, working with the finest people with costume and makeup and hair and production design and people like Sarah Paulson. And now we've got this amazing cast, Jessica Lang, who has been a pal of mine for a long time. And it's yeah. just, um, I remember when she left the show, it was her last show and we were doing Freak Show and she was on stage and I was, my character was off stage and, and it was just the end and she just looked back at me. You know, and everything just in that moment was saying, I love you. I loved working with you. It's over, you know, but it was just so magnificent. Yeah, just in a look. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. You two could get real evil real fast. Yes. When I was married, my ex-husband said after he saw misery that he didn't see anything unusual up there. On yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I've seen those expressions before. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it's a little joke. I married my wife for her looks, but not the ones I'm getting now. <laughs> <laughs> She's not hearing this, is she? <laughs> I want you to say hi to Robin before you leave. She's around here somewhere. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. On Oops! The Podcast, join me, comedian Julio Gallarotti, as I examine everyday life, the mistakes, the bad decisions, the goals, the jokes, the social engagements, and all things in between. I'm joined every week by producer and personal confidant, Ryan Lynch, various other comedians for witty, candid, and intoxicating conversation. Our listeners love Oops! for sophisticated banter, aka your mom could listen, and many feel like they're in the room with us chopping it up with old pals. You can find every episode of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. You did your first nude scene at age 43. Was that scary? Yeah. Was that the one in the jungle I think I did? I don't, I can't remember, but yeah, I wasn't very, very happy with that. At Play in the, in the Fields, Fields of, of the Lord. Lord. It was yeah, yeah, a Peter Matheson book. Yeah. And um, it was a difficult shoot. We were there for about six months in the uh, jungle up there in uh, Brazil. So it was kind of strange to Was that hard living? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the films that Saul Zantz produced that did not go well. He won three Academy Awards for films that he had done, like uh, Amadeus and Cuckoo's Nest, The English Patient. And he loved this novel, and he brought it um, to um, South America to do, and it just didn't turn out well at all. But it was um, it was hard. You know, when you sit in a makeup chair and it says day one of 120, <laughs> and you're out in the jungle, and you're thinking, okay. Oh, God. That, that would be tough. Yeah. That would be tough. I mean, he took great care of us. I guess that's why I wanted to bring his name. Oh, God rest him. He was one of the great producers. And I was sorry the film didn't turn out the way he wanted it to. But um, it was tough for everybody. There was one amazing moment. We all stayed late. It's not good to be on the Amazon at night because of the rogue logs and stuff. And um, so we would have to get home usually early. And I don't know what, maybe that's when we were living on the boat. There was a boat they had for us. But anyway, there were, one of the crew members had a little baby. And we all got together and we just did this impromptu. The Indians were there, the guys that were playing, the, the Indians from the, uh, you know, the different tribes. Uh, which were actually three different tribes of people that had actually been living in Rio de Janeiro. And they brought them all together to do all these Ritowski and create their own crime. Really? Yeah, it was amazing. When they came in, we were like, oh my God, they're here, they're here. And you'd see these guys in these little loincloths and the faces and feathers and stuff. And that night, they took the little baby and they had some white egret feathers and... We, we had palms, we said prayers, we all danced around him, we welcomed him into the world, and that was a really beautiful experience. Oh, it sounds like. Now, you said you had to be off the Amazon because of road logs? Yeah, you had to be careful. Uh, uh, Daryl Hannah was in the movie, and they were so upset with her because she'd go water skiing on the Amazon. She loves being outside. She's very sportive. She does all that kind of stuff. And, um, but it's not good to be out there in the dark. What's a rogue log? A rogue log? It would be like if there's, you know, um, if they're doing any kind of burning or in those days they were, they were just starting to do the burning down there. So if they emptied the logs, you know, shoved them off the land into the, to oh, the river and then they would come down and they could bang your boat, hit your yeah. boat, put a hole in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. No, that wouldn't be good. No, that wouldn't be good. All right. So I got to ask you this. So when you're not applying your trade when you're not acting, not in a movie or a series or whatever. What do you do when you're just hanging out? Besides watching you? Yeah, besides watching <laughs> <Okay>. Dr. Phil. <laughs> um, I love to read. I'm a voracious reader. Um, I'm usually lost surfing the internet, reading things. I, I'm pretty solitary, really. Um, um I don't know how to answer that. I read, I used to, well, I do know how to answer that. A few years ago, I got invited to to um, write a, a book that I was working on, a children's book. So I was, but a proper novel, you know, like a fiction mm -hmm. piece. And I worked on that. I used to write at night from mm -hmm. like five at night until five in the morning. You made a comment, and I'm not quoting it exactly, so if I mischaracterize it, you can slap me or something. But you commented on how... It works out here in Hollywood that you do have to kind of live a bit of an isolated existence. You can't just go anywhere and do anything. Do you feel that way? I think that's more 
about me. I'm not this huge A, A-list star. I've never gone to these big parties and all that. And I, I probably should have because networking is the name of the game now. But mm-hmm. um, I, I just, I guess because, I don't know, maybe because I came to it in my 40s. And um, <clears throat> so it does feel lonely to me sometimes because my very best friends are back in New York from, you know, being in the theater well, in those days. That was the word you used that I was reaching for, that it is you kind of a home, lonely existence. You know, you, well, you know, well, maybe you don't because you have a family, but, um, and my family, my two, my sister and my niece and grandniece live in Culver City, so they're close, but you're the center of attention. And then you get out of the car, you're lugging your own stuff into the house, the dogs are barking, and you put the alarm on and it's quiet. You know, Cher told me, one, Cher's a fr- good friend, she told me one time, like when she does her concerts, like at Staples Center or something, you know, and there's like all these people there screaming. So in that last finale song, you know, she makes her exit after the encore and the music is still playing. And she said, they race me backstage and down a ramp and there's a limo waiting and it zooms up the ramp. And before the music is stopped, I'm five lights down, zooming through LA, getting on the freeway. And she said, the silence is deafening, and I'm thinking, where are they racing me to? I have nowhere to go. I, there's nobody waiting. It's like the silence is deafening. It's like you're yeah. there in one minute. You're the absolute center of the universe. They're really and the next thing you know, it's like, oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then you go home. It's true. And you eat peanut butter out of a jar or something. Yeah, you know? exa- exactly. I focus on the good stuff, though. I focus on surviving. I focus on, so I have so much in my life, you know, and you know, when you're on movie sets, like the other day, somebody was apologizing because I had to wait 45 minutes. And I'm thinking, really? <laughs> this is what we're worried about, yeah. you know, when there's so much going on in the world. And I'm lucky to have a roof over my head and a big banquet in there to eat whenever I'm hungry and people that love me and they're all right here. And, yeah. you know, I just... um I focus on things like that. Yeah, I try to remind myself, you know, think about a teacher or a fireman or something, because the worst job in entertainment is better than the best job that they, they're working all these hours for no pay, and it, which it shouldn't be, but that's the way it is. I'm like you. I don't, you don't see me on red carpets or at parties or whatever. And I was telling, uh, this is my best friend over here, Bill Dawson in the orange shirt. Say hi. Hey, Bill. He's uh, from Dallas. And I tell him, you, you do get in kind of a siege mentality out here because if you go somewhere, uh, Oprah told me when this all started, she said, if you don't feel like it, just don't go out there. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not up for it, just don't go. Because if you're in a bad mood or something, you hurt somebody's feelings, they'll tell everybody mm-hmm. on the globe. If mm-hmm. you're not up for it, just don't go. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, I, and also, really, I think for us gals, you know, you have to get made up. Uh, Joan Collins is in our show, and I've gotten to know her. And we out, went out for dinner the other night, and we talked about that, how, yeah. you know, she looks incredible. and But that's what she does. I mean, she's kept that going for all the years that she's been doing this. Yeah. Sometimes I'll be going home from an event and I'll think, oh, I'd love to go out and have a drink, but I'd be by myself, Yeah. you know, and I thought, you know, and then I'd get in trouble, Yeah. <laughs> you know, getting too friendly with somebody. So yeah. It'd be calling the cops Man, on that's you. That's right. Get this woman away from me. Now, 
Six years ago was when you got diagnosed, right? Uh, yes. And did this come out of the blue for you? Sometimes I feel like life is a poem and God's the one that's writing it. I had been in France. Uh, my show, Harry's Law, had gotten canceled, and it was a real sock in the gut. And I went to France to visit with a friend of mine, and we went to the South. And it was so interesting looking back, because when we were driving, I had both feet pressed against the, the floorboard. It was like my body was telling me, stop, don't go, turn around, go back. This is wrong, wrong direction, wrong really? direction. And I stayed there a few days, and then I promised to go to Sloan Kettering for a breast um, uh, event, and they wanted me to speak there. And I remember my speech was about surviving ovarian cancer and, and being feeling so great and it, how it's so great when you have cancer and this happens. Then. And then the next day I went home and I had a an MRI because I was feeling a little weird. And by the time I got home, the phone was ringing and so it was my oncologist. I was asymptomatic. You said you were feeling weird. Was it just no, your body no. was telling you? Or yeah, you were it was like symptoms? I was having tummy problems there. And because it was in the same area as the ovarian, I thought, well, what's going on? Maybe this has come back. What's going on? My doctor was calling me and he said, you know, you have a tumor. And I said, make it a double because breast cancer runs like a river in my family. And um, so went through it. It was harder than going through the ovarian. Really? Yeah, for a lot of reasons. Um, uh, my mother had had a radical. I had seen her arm swell badly. And back in the 70s, I didn't know what that was. I just knew that it changed her life mm -hmm. completely and broke her spirit. I remember telling the, the doctor, if the sentinel node is clear, get out, get out, get out. And of course, He's got to save me from cancer. You know, right. I wouldn't be here if he hadn't done what he did. Right. So, but sure enough, um, he took 19 lymph nodes from my left armpit and three from my right. And when I found out about it, about it I just, you think American Horror Story is scary? <laughs> yeah. You should have been in that room with me. Yeah. I just went berserk. What and, did you think at that point? Well, I felt betrayed. I felt like nobody. I mean, my niece was in the room. My best friend was in the room. I was screaming, yelling. Um, and then I heard this little um, social worker say, she was over here, and I was, and she said, now just take a breath. Take two deep breaths. And I was just like, I looked at her like, get the fuck out of here, lady. And I just left because I thought none of these people understand what this is, what it means to me you know, why this is so devastating. I was really angry for a long time. And one of my surgeons found a doctor named Emily Eicher who works and treats people with lymphedema in Santa Monica. So I started to go and see her. And it was only till then that I started to let all of the anger and the rage and the upset go and work with her in terms of getting the swelling down in my arms and uh, moving on with my life. And how bad was the swelling? It was bad at first. I could only wear men's shirts. So that was another memory of, you know, the devil. So that was hard for me. The experience of going through it, I have to tell you this story, though. I think you'll like this. The story I want to tell you that I feel was the pivotal moment that has changed my life. I had had, you know, they give you, they put these grenades in to take the fluid out and all this stuff. And it was the first day I was free of all of that. 
free of the grenades, my medication I was going down on, the sun was out. I had just gotten some new furniture for my patio. So I thought, I'm going to go out there, these big glass doors. And I was just looking out, feeling so relieved, and wham, this little finch flew right into the glass and fell on the pavement dead. And I'm thinking, great, it's always something. And so I went out there and I picked him up and his head was hanging off my hand. And I just thought, I'm going to go over here and sit down with him. And it's at those moments that you begin those little thoughts of hubris, you know, and I started thinking, oh, I wish I had the power to heal this little bird. And then I think, no, no, don't go there. That's not right, you know. And I just ended up praying and said, let your will be done, you know. And shortly after that, he just turned over in my hand. I could feel his little tiny claws, and I could see his beak, and his little eyes that had been all, you know, scrunched up, the little ribbony parts were fine. And I just gently tested each wing, and it was fine. And I just didn't believe it. And my niece, Linda, who's here, I think, um, I don't know, is she back over there? Hi, Linda. So she's just the best person in the entire world. And she she's just this Francis of Assisi in our family. So she came over there and she looked at him. She said, oh, he needs some water. So she went and got those little Dixie cup and, you know, tore off yeah. the top of it and put some water. And we put him in this planter underneath these leaves and let him drink. He drank. He was thirsty. So Linda left. She said, leave him alone. <laughs> Don't go over there and mess with him. <laughs> I said, okay. So but after a while, I just couldn't take it. I, I did leave him for a while. And then I went out and I started to just reach for him and he flew away. And I called Linda and I said, oh my God, he flew away. And she said, are you getting the message? And I said, no, thinking I can heal people. <laughs> I, I, said, I didn't want to say that. New job. I said, <laughs> no, it's like, um, and I said, no, I'm not getting the message. And she said, you, you thought you were dead, but you're alive. You've been given a second chance. And to me, putting aside all the jokes about hubris or whatever, that was a God moment. That was a moment of grace. Yeah. And no it, it just, it just, my soul flipped. And since then, I just, I just feel like it's been such a gift. How could you not? My aunt who had it back in the 70s died before they could do anything for her, you know? Not long after that, my friend Jessica Lang got me an interview with Ryan Murphy, and and off I went. We were off and running. And how do you feel now? Well, um, I... I think it's probably still in my future. If you want to know the truth. You think what's in your future? That it will come back. What makes you think that? I just don't know. I don't know how to tell you why I think that. And I don't dwell on it. But um, 
And there are times when I'm really angry that I've got this swelling to deal with. Like I, you know, I had to do something in the show recently and my arm just couldn't take it. And, you know, and there's sometimes that I wish that it had never happened, but if it hadn't happened, then I wouldn't have had the opportunity to become part of this group, the Lymphatic Education and Research Network, and mm-hmm. get my face out there. And, mm-hmm. you know, all my life, Dr. Phil, I feel like um, I fought with being an actor in this business because it's so self-aggrandizing. And I fall into the trap. I get into the ego and all that other stuff. And I try not to, but I do. And so I just feel I'm living on borrowed time, I guess. You know, I don't dwell on it, though. I really don't. But that's why I try to just enjoy every minute and stay in the moment. Mm -hmm. But you say that you fought being an actor and it got into, because of the self-aggrandizing and being a center of attention and all of that, you don't look at this as some kind of retribution for that. No, 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 no. That's not what you mean. No, what I mean is, you know, I've gotten, like recently I was able to go and meet these amazing doctors who is at uh, uh, Sloan Kettering, who does transplant surgery for lymph nodes. And it was one of the thrills of the last six years because it's been an uphill climb. You know, Mm -hmm. people have got a lot on their plate. So this is like, you know, take a number. We're at the back of the line. But to hear a doctor of his stature say what you're doing is making a difference was just amazing. You know, I was very angry when I, when I developed lymphedema shortly after um, having a mastectomy. Mm -hmm. But if that hadn't happened, then I wouldn't be in a position to have helped people in this way. Now I'm having a hard time taking the business seriously. Right. Because of, of, of interacting with peer, people like the gentleman I met in Washington who mm-hmm. lost three children below the age of five to pulmonary lymphedema. Mm-hmm. But, you know, everything is a means to an end, right? I mean, the fact that you do what you do gives you the wherewithal to do the things that you're doing in the leadership role that you have. Yeah. I mean, seriously, if you were working uh, a nine to five at Walmart or you were working uh in mowing yards or doing something that's honest and good work, nothing wrong with it, but you wouldn't have the notoriety to bring the attention to this disease. And it's, I mean, it's it's a profound impact. I mean, it's just a profound impact. It's gotten very personal over that Mm -hmm. process. And it's, when I was in Washington and I met some of these people, um, First of all, I, they are tremendously courageous. And I, at one point, I just went up to my hotel room just and had a good old cry because I felt like, how are we going to do this? What, what is going to make the difference? One of the other things I like to hear people hear you talk about is you've really focused on mindfulness here and you've lost like 55 pounds, you focused on your health in general because to the extent that your constitution just overall is better and your autoimmune system is stronger and you've really focused on that, right? I have. It's taken me a really long time. I'm talking years. Uh, A few years ago, I was diagnosed with diabetes. That runs in my father's side of the family. He died 
um, from complications. His mother died from that. A relative, another relative of mine has it. Well, I was diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic in my 30s. Oh, no. And so I've been managing it ever since. And, you know, there is a an 8 to 12-minute gap when your satiety center sends the message that you are full. And if you're still eating when you feel full, what you've eaten in the last eight to 10 minutes, you didn't even want. Exactly. And so if you're, when you finally feel full, if you're still eating, you've eaten a lot of food you didn't want. Exactly. So if you, that's that sigh. If you take that break, that take that minute and let it catch up to you, then you'll eat a whole lot less, of, of course. Exactly. Uh, you're the official spokesperson for the Lymphatic Education and Research Network. And um, the focus here is education, research, and advocacy. And you're just trying to get the word out. But if somebody's listening to this right now, what do they need to ask their doctor when they go in and sit down? If they want to clear themselves, they want to be screened for lymphedema or any irregularities in their lymphatic system, what do they need to ask their doctor? Well, there's a new thing called lymphocentigraphy, which I think I want to try. I haven't done it. They can see, begin to see the lymph system. But I would pay attention to symptoms like heaviness in the limb mm-hmm. that you can't explain, swelling, certainly, if there's a difference in one part of, like, if you have something in your arm and your left arm is bigger than your other one, if, if it's sore in places, if tingling in your fingers, um, if there's pain, um, I think you should go. And my feeling has been, because we've, we've tried to educate the doctors, and the best way is for patients to teach them. It's like if they can go and say, look, I've heard about this. I want to investigate it. What are the tests I can have that I, that would afford me that? Are there any PTs? Can you get somebody in your office to look around for me in my area? The best thing is, and this is not to serve us, but go to our website. Send us an email. The website that they can go to for this is lymphaticnetwork.org. Thank you. You'll find all kinds of resources there. You can Google uh, lymphatic network and research network uh, under videos, and you'll find all kinds of stuff on YouTube. And, you know, y- you had some really important facts that were startling to me. And you say up to 10 million Americans and hundreds of millions worldwide have lymphedema, and that more Americans have lymphedema than AIDS, Parkinson's, and muscular dystrophy and ALS combined. That's why I got involved. So it's a big deal. And up to 35% of women treated for breast cancer are at risk for developing lymphedema. Mm-hmm. And up to 100% of those with head and neck cancers are reportedly at risk for developing lymphedema. So they're really at risk. Mm-hmm. So this is not some really fringe sort of thing. This is a major, major problem. And it doesn't have a cure. Uh, so it has to be managed. It does. That's all we have right now. I mentioned Dr. Roxon. He's been doing a clinical trial up at his clinic in Stanford University. We have real high hopes, of course, for that. That's all we can do right now is share our stories together. And and, uh, it's it's like climbing Mount Everest. Yeah. I can't thank you enough. We'll really 
talk about this so people get it. Thank you. You've been so kind. Kathy, I can't tell you what an honor it's been to sit here and talk to you. Oh, I've loved every minute well, of it. thank you for doing this. Oh, God, it's All my right? pleasure and a great honor. Find Fill in the Blanks in your podcast app. Then subscribe so you don't miss an episode.